follow the news closely, the ongoing social unrest and the political struggles are taking place in China nationwide. On one hand, people are asking, what about this zero COVID policy today? And is it still becoming more effective or has become one of the political weapons that actually hurts the political base in China? But meanwhile, and what about the credibility of sitting Chinese President Xi Jinping? After attending the G20 summit recently, Xi Jinping seemed to roll out this brand new strategy not only towards the political changes in China and also this economic factors. Uh, in addition to all of that, you follow the news that you know former U.S. President Donald Trump recently claimed he's returning to the presidential race for the year of 2024. Is this a piece of good news for China or maybe something that China will be unprepared? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to invite our distinguished speaker is Bob Davis. Bob Davis has covered U.S.-China relations since the 1990s when the two nations were working hard to strengthen their ties. In 2022, Davis retired from the Wall Street Journal as a senior editor in Washington, D.C. after 39 years at the newspaper. And of course, if you follow his work in 2020, and he came out with a brand new book called Super Power Showdown, how the battle between Trump and Xi threatens a new Cold War. And in, that, in this episode, we're going to talk to Bob regarding all those critical matters not only within China and also outside this nation. Well, Bob, and welcome to The Missing Piece. Well, thanks. Thanks very much for the invitation. Happy to be here. Well, Bob, I have to say that after 39 years at the newspaper, again, it's my honor to invite such a distinguished journalist like you to join the show. Now, let's talk about the ongoing political and social unrest took place in the past of 48 hours in China. Again, I'm sure you follow the news closely. Nationwide, the protests that took place, and not only people were chanting down with Xi Jinping, and also people were questioning the credibility of this uh, Communist Party, and also this ruling and this zero COVID policy. Putting everything together, Bob, how would you understand or how would you interpret today's political change and also this un unrest in China? Well, I mean, it, it's just an enormous challenge uh, for the party and for the government. Um, you know, probably the greatest challenge they face politically, I imagine, since Tiananmen Square. Mm. But, but, and it's nowhere, let, let's keep things in perspective. I mean, it's nowhere near the kind of um, nationwide protest for democracy that occurred uh, before the Tiananmen Square back, uh, uh, crackdown. However, um, what makes it particularly complicated, it, it isn't just that people want democracy, freedom, or uh, truth from their government. There's a virus here, right? I mean, you know, it's like the party can do what the party does. The party can crack down. The party can, you know, censor people's views. They can do all sorts of things. But it's not. It's not. It's not even the same as as was in Hong Kong, right? Where you had gotten million people out on the street. Um, but there again, you could crack down. You could you arrest people. You could expel people. But you can't expel a vaccine. I mean, they've they've they imagined that coronavirus would be a very different sort of 
medical challenge that it was. They have not gotten remotely a handle on it. People are just frustrated. I mean, mm. anywhere people would be frustrated. And, and you see, I mean, at least today, the party was making little kind of concessions, modifications. But, you know, we got a long way to go. Well, Bob, as we mentioned in the intro, now recently Xi Jinping just came back from attending the G20 summit. Now, only during the summit, he had a three-hour-long conversation with the sitting U.S. President Joe Biden, and also he met up with a lot more international leaders, particularly uh, particularly in Southeast Asia. Now, going back to another piece of news that we know that after this 20th congressional meeting, Xi Jinping got confirmed for his third-term presidential run and also his presidency. Now, Bob, how would you think that this ongoing political and social unrest can actually hurt the credibility of Xi Jinping? And what about his policy? Now, from your perspective, do you think that he's willing to sacrifice some of the uh, political agenda in order to keep this social stability? Or his focus is still going to be centered on political strength or political base um, in order to make the noises louder? So what do you think? Well, again, if it was just a political, I think the question would be pretty easy to answer. If it was just politics, if it was just a democratic movement, I think there's no doubt it would be pure repression, right? I mean, they try to uh, uh, do it with as you know little violence as they can as they could uh, manage, but it would be repression would be the hundred uh, percent answer. Mm. This one is just more difficult. I mean, Xi Jinping, if you remember when. COVID first started, the pandemic was in its really frightening, particularly frightening stages. One of the few things he gave Li Keqiang, his number two, supposedly his number two, he was mm. never even told his number two. It's like, oh, here, you get COVID. <laughs> you, you get to handle COVID. I'll take, I'll take care of everything else because it was such a hot potato. It was so difficult to figure out how to deal with it. And the back, you know, the backlash against it was going to be uh, enormous, no matter who had it. But since then, he has staked his reputation on handling COVID. And so it is difficult for him to back away from it. I think he'll have to, in some way, modify it, you know, presumably by not uh, admitting publicly that he had made mistakes, but it, it it's a tough thing to manage. Mm -hmm. I mean, remember, I mean, the obvious answer for what the Chinese ought to do is to import much more efficient vaccines and to ease enormously the restrictions on people's mo uh, mo movement. However, you know, you do that and a lot more people are going to get sick and a lot more people are going to die. Mm. You know, it is not as if the United States and Europe handled COVID well. They didn't. You know, we have more immunity in this country because so many people got sick and so many people died. Mm. Um, so it isn't like there's a great, easy choice out there. It's a very difficult choice. Uh, you know, from my perspective, I think what happened was they the, the party took such a beating with their very, very bad uh, response to SARS. Mm. Um, and, you know, SARS, they were too late. They hid the truth, the usual, you know, the, the usual MO. But I mean, you know, uh, 
it broadly recognized that they did a terrible job. Mm -hmm. So this time they locked everybody up as fast as they could. They're, they're draconian in the measures that they took, but it's, it's a different kind of disease. I mean, mm -hmm. SARS, you could lock people up, put them in their apartments and it goes away. This one comes back in any number of different permutations and it's just not gone. Mm -hmm. Bob, I have one more question for you before we move on to uh, talk about your book. And what about the reaction from the people? Again, throughout the media, we've seen people were chanting, you know, slogans such as down with Xi Jinping, or we want more freedom and we want we don't want to lock down. You know, again, it's not just about the people living in Beijing, but actually it's nationwide. And also a lot more younger generations today are very vocal and also are questioning if this restriction or lockdown are actually becoming effective. But most importantly, that more and more younger people today are very bold to stand up against the policies and also against this authority. Now, Bob, from your perspective, how effective do you think it's going to become for this younger generation continue to voice opposition towards the Communist Party or towards the Communist Party's uh, policies? That's number one. And number two, what kind of message should we understand by looking at the actions of the younger generations today in China? Well, first of all, it's just incredibly brave, right? I mean, you know, people can get uh, thrown into jail. Um, God knows what happens to them in jail, you know, linger in jail forever. Um, so, first of all, it's just very, very brave. I mean, it's kind of on a par with what's happening in Iran, with the young women and young people in Iran. It's just, uh, you take your hats off to them. It's really something. Um, you know, I mean, if it becomes an anti-party uh, protest, it's probably going to, you know, wind up in repression. I don't see anything, any way around it. If it is you know, aimed more at the lockdowns, you know, and less at Xi Jinping. I, I, I don't, I think it's inevitable. Of course it's inevitable that the party has to move. I mean, they can't keep the place locked up forever. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just, it's impossible um, because the economy would tank and they, they care about that also. Um, so yes, they'll have to move. So the question would be, can they move adroitly enough so that it mollifies, you know, basically mollifies enough of the population so that it's, you know, uh, kind of short-lived, essentially. They kind of get what they want, even if they don't get the satisfaction of, you know, the party admitting that it made mistakes. Um, so it's it's a big challenge, but I wouldn't overplay, you know, it's, it's also funny, it's kind of an, one of the effects in China of, the enormous censorship uh, that they have for years and years. So many, of the, I imagine many of those young people don't know anything about Tiananmen mm -hmm. Square and don't know anything about the soldiers, you know, shooting protesters there. Um, a lot of, you know, what was happened in Hong Kong was, was shut off, you know, to people in the mainland. And plus, you know, as you know, people in the mainland in general don't have high regard uh, for people in Hong Kong or didn't at least because mm -hmm. they... You know, they felt that people in Hong Kong thought they were better than people in the mainland. Mm -hmm. But still, you know, they don't, I don't think, I think they're um, concerned. They should be concerned if they're young protesters about what might happen. But they also don't have the memory, you know, for better or worse, of the kind of military action that can be taken against people in China. And Bob, I mean, the I other, to... just one last thing. Sure. You know, I mean, 
Back to Tiananmen Square. You know, if those soldiers in that square hadn't fired on the protesters and had fired at Zhongnanhai, that would have been the end of the regime, right? I mean, you have soldiers are people, you know, right. and, you know, the people who, and the policemen and the soldiers and the security people who come out, you know, to enforce what the party's doing, they have, you know, they're affected. They have mothers and fathers who are affected. They have cousins and broader clan. You know, it, it is ultimately about people and uh, whether the people in security will follow, you know, the leader um, so far. I mean, we're not we're nowhere close to uh, seeing that not happen. But, you know, that um, that ultimately is is uh, the staying power of any regime is whether it commands enough respect from the population and from the security officials that um, uh, execute their orders or don't execute their orders. That's right, Bob. And also what matters the worst, it's really seeing those officials or police officers that they blindly followed the regulations or followed the rules that without actually knowing the truth behind those orders. But anyway, I'm very much interested to dive into uh, the conversation regarding your book. Again, the book is called Superpower Showdown, how the battle between Trump and she threatens a new Cold War. Bob, as we mentioned before, not too long ago, former U.S. President Donald Trump claimed that he's interested in running to be the president again for the country of United States of America in the year, year of 2024. Now, the first question, in terms of dealing with China, is this going to be a brand new a piece of good news or China needs to prepare another type of brand new strategy in order to deal with Trump's presidential election? Well, uh, he's running, but let's not assume that he's going to win. So first off, Yes, he's running. Uh, China will be inevitably a big part for Trump. It'll be one of the big campaign issues uh, that he'll bring up. Mm -hmm. He'll say that whatever you think of what Biden has done, and we can talk about it. He'll think he'll say that Biden's been too weak. You know, the Chinese, if I had been president, the Chinese wouldn't have done this. The Chinese wouldn't have done that. Um, and uh, China becomes both um, kind of an economic stalking horse for concerns Americans have about the economy and, and things not going very well. But in addition, it becomes kind of a symbol, essentially, a symbol uh, that the elites of the America, the elites in America, the government in America and the media and, and uh, business have turned their back on ordinary Americans and, you know, favor China and let China run, you know, roughshod all over the world. That's the way he'll phrase it. So China will be a big part of any election campaign. Frankly, any, even if he doesn't win the nomination, the Republican nomination, any candidate on the Republican side is going to make, try to make China a big issue. Now, if he wins, yeah, <laughs> who knows? You know, I mean, it's so hard to know with this guy. But yes, if I was if I was sitting in Beijing, they have a lot to worry about at the moment. They don't have to worry about, you know, two years from now in a presidential election. But yes, he's totally unpredictable. Um, but it's probably um, makes it even less likely. If he were to win, it would make it even less likely that you'd find any sort of reasonable engagement by these two countries. Well, Bob, but again, there's something in your book that, you know, I read particularly interested me the most is talking about this 
economy or this economic battle between U.S. and China. And this is something that you explained specifically in the book. But one thing we have to understand is after the confirmation for Xi Jinping's third term, and if we look at this brand new cabinet members that he brought on the stage, and he proudly introduced each one of them, and a lot more economic, economic experts believe that for this time, or for this next falling four to five years, that Xi Jinping is very much interested in shaping up this not only domestic, but also this international economic agenda. But on the other hand, going back to the book, remember Donald Trump's background was not a politician and he was the businessman, he was a celebrity, however you want to name it. But the truth is, to bring the middle class into the conversation, again, this is something you mentioned in the book, was one of the signatures for Donald Trump. And so in other words, that really uh, was routed the entire crowd, you know, the voters. So, Bob, from your perspective, help us to understand, regardless if Trump is going to become the next president or not, how much do you think that China is willing to work with the U.S. on this economic agenda or on this an economic negotiation? Because right now, even though people are saying Joe Biden and Xi Jinping met each other in uh, uh, during the G20 summit, but so far we have not seen any progress where we probably we won't see any changes until another year or so. So, from your perspective... How would you describe this economic deadlock right now and how much change can we expect in the year of 2024 or maybe after this result of election? Mm. I mean, the subtitle of our book was, you know, threatens a new Cold War. I mean, I think we're we're in it. Mm. You know, it's different than the one against the Soviet Union, but uh, we're in the midst of it or the beginning of it. You know, I think what happened at the G20 is mostly that bad things didn't happen you know that that they put a kind of you know bottom things wouldn't get uh, worse and we wouldn't go to war you know things things that almost seem you know impossible five six ten seven years ago um you know unimaginable not impossible unimaginable that the u.s and china would actually go to an actual shooting war i mean it just seemed mm. crazy um, but you know we're at we're at a point where that's imaginable now, and I think they wanted to make sure it didn't spill over into that, you know, as badly as that. So, so yeah, it's good. Good that you got. God knows we don't need you know another war. Um, so that's a positive thing. I think one positive you can take away from the G20. I think this is right, but you know it got a little bit of attention, but. Um, Biden and she at least had a statement, although she didn't say it publicly, but but he didn't um, deny it, you know, that um, they said something to the effect that in Ukraine that uh, there shouldn't be any use of nuclear weapons. Mm. Um, Xi Jinping and the uh, German chancellor had a statement similar. And interestingly, you do see. Um, Putin, uh, President Putin in, in Russia, he has stopped talking about that, right? I mean, I think he would put out statements more recently saying, you know, anybody who uses nuclear weapons would be, you know, a fool, you know, it would be, um, you know, uh, a disaster for the world. So maybe that was one of the positive results. I, I'm not sure if that, you know, 100%, but it's possible. Um, you know, other than that, I think, as I say, I put as what the Americans call guardrails on it, the attempt to. But no, there's been nothing uh, positive, no, nothing affirmative that's come out of it. I think you'd see it in in two areas. 
in climate, I, I shouldn't say that. In climate, they are, they've restarted some talk, so that's something. Mm -hmm. But, you know, that's an area, obviously, of common interest where you would need, you know, the two biggest economies of the world to be working on it. That's one. But economics and trade play a very, very interesting role in all of this. So you go, but let's go back to when Nixon first went to China, right? Mm -hmm. This is uh, 1974, was it, or 1972? I forget exactly what year. I should know this off the top of my head. But when he went to China, China was in the midst of the Cultural Revolution, That's right? right? I mean, right? You know, the worst, maybe the worst human rights violation since the end of World War II. Um, but still, you know, there were other reasons. There were political and military reasons for uh, Nixon to want to go to China. Um, uh, but so they had that, their economic and military reasons, which is basically to... Um, you know, to uh, strike a somewhat uh, quasi-alliance against the Soviet Union or to put the Soviet Union, uh, give them something more to worry about. But the way in which the two countries drew closer was through trade and economics, mm -hmm. right? Because it seemed unemotional, right? It just It's just trade, right? You know, it's not, you know, it's not a question of, um, you know, dealing with dissidents. It's not a question of human rights or it didn't seem to be anyway. So, it isn't really as unemotional as all that. There are all these other issues about law and rights and, uh, you know, a million things wrapped up into it. Mm. But that would be what you would expect if these, if it's not going to be a Cold War. You mm. would expect some movement in the trade area, some movement in economics and finance. So far, you don't see any of it. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but that's, I think, the area to look at. I think also, I know from the American perspective, they believe that, even when it comes to climate, that the Chinese aren't really willing to move unless the U.S. makes concessions in other areas, you know, on Taiwan or, or you know, other areas of Chinese interest, where the American view is like, you know, we can disagree on a million things, but, you know, China, you know, climate's in our interest. No matter what happens elsewhere, we should be working together. They claim that that's not what um, is, uh, that's not the view in Beijing. So even in climate, they're really not making a hell of a lot of progress. There's a little bit. It's not, and again, things didn't get worse. That's that's basic outcome. Bob, I know there's another chapter which um, related to what we call ping pong diplomacy. And you know that ping pong has been one of the favorite or national sports in China. And again, when we look at the ping pong sports, again, I'm not very good at playing ping pong, you know, shamefully speaking. But um, I know a lot of people who are very much into the sports. And But let's look at this phrase from this geopolitical standpoint. When we look at this ping pong diplomacy, as you mentioned in 19, I believe it's 1972, uh, when Nixon arrived in China, and that was really the crucial period for the countries, again, to get to know each other. You know, we always remember this image where Nixon shook hands with Chairman Mao, and then Zhou Enlai was the premier and sat down, had this conversation, the beautiful banquet, etc. But today, when we talk about this ping pong diplomacy, three words actually can be uh, uh, used. And number one is the word aggressiveness. And number two is the word strategy. And number three is the word fairness. Now, Bob, you dive into this uh, uh, in the chapters regarding this ping pong diplomacy. By looking the three words, how much do you think that today, when we look at this relationship between China and U.S. or between Xi Jinping and Biden or in the future Xi Jinping with any other president uh, president uh, in the U.S., do you think that today China seems to continue to be more aggressive or continue to hold or push this wolf warrior diplomacy? Or 
China maybe it's time to think about we should be fair, we should be modest, at least we should be polite, maybe dial down this foreign policy towards the West or towards the uh, the rest of the world a little bit more. So how, how would you describe this at this moment? I don't see any evidence that they're trying to be any less aggressive. I think they've been, you know, aggressive. Uh, the uh, alliance that they have with the Russians from an American point of view, never made a hell of a lot of sense, you know, mm -hmm. to hitch your wagon to a country that is, um, you know, an energy power, but that's it, you know, uh, and to alienate, even if they felt that the Americans were a lost cause, you know, the Europeans, I mean, the countries that made you rich, really, you're going to be in opposition to all those countries. So, but that's not clearly, that's not the way they look at it in Beijing. And, and I don't see any evidence that they're moving away from it. Um, if, if anything, I think you alluded to it, is the people that he picked, uh, that Xi Jinping picked for the Politburo Standing Committee to, I mean, they were obviously his cronies and his, and his allies, but in addition, you know, they were people who had some um, interest or some experience with technology and so on. And, you know, I mean, if you're sitting in Beijing, I mean, the Americans have been very aggressive when it comes to technology and industries of the future. I mean, what do they have to do? What do they feel they have to do, which is to build up their domestic capabilities? Because uh, they're not getting any help from the Americans. If anything, there's even more sanctions coming down the road. Mm. So um, uh, I don't know. I think it's this is this is a really rough time uh, in U.S. China, a really rough time. I don't see that it's going to get much better. I don't see that Biden's changing much. I, mean, I think he may um, assess, as I say, more more sanctions. You might see TikTok banned, which would be amazing. Um, uh, you know, and some other things that in uh, restrictions on American investment in China, not just Chinese investment in America. So there's a lot of things that could happen. Again, if I'm wrong, I mean, the area you would expect to see it would be in trade, that they'd maybe restart trade talks of some sort or, mm. or um, you know, remove some of the tariffs. I mean, just removing the tariffs wouldn't make much of a difference, you know, economically, but it would be a signal, you know, that they intended to go in a different direction. And that we don't see any evidence of that at the moment. That's what I'd be looking for. Mm. Bob, I know you're a very busy... You know, it's interesting you mentioned ping-pong diplomacy. I mean, back then, it was different in the sense that, you know, the U.S. had cut off China from so much of the world, right? And there was so much of a mystery about what was in China, you know? Um, and there's, there's a very long history of Americans being very interested in China, mm. a lot of Chinese Americans. Uh, so you had all of that, you know, just a mystique. Well, the mystique's gone, you know? I mean... Yeah, people have been able, in a good way, people have been able to, you know, travel to China. Chinese people have been able to travel, you know, to America and Europe. So that sort of thing, playing on, you know, kind of the mystique, it just won't work anymore. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows, you know, it's not just ping pong, you know. Um, so it's just different times. That's right. Well, Bob, I know you're very busy. I got two more questions before letting you go. Let's talk about one of the signat a signatory uh, uh, achievement for Xi Jinping now, which is the Belt and Road Initiative. But right now, at this moment, and given the fact that today the pandemic completely changed the entire world and also a lot more countries who are politically vulnerable and also financially unstable, uh, unstable they were 
Once they were looking for ways to seek better relationship with China under this Belt and Road Initiative. But right now, more and more economists and also political scientists begin to question the motive and also the effectiveness of Belt and Road Initiative. Now, Bob, from your perspective, after all those years of reporting on China, how much do you think does the Belt and Road Initiative hold in terms of uh, collecting the resources and also uh, solidifying the credibility of the co uh, Communist Party? And also, what about this uh, payback or this tit-for-tat deal between China and some of the countries? So what can we make of that? I thought it was a really brilliant strategy to start with, right? I mean, you know... China doesn't didn't have the web of alliances that the United States does, right? Mm. Um, and so to try to figure out a way to sweep in a whole variety of countries, even make inroads into Europe, was I thought really a brilliant idea. Mm. Um, but I don't think they've they've uh, and also it was a way uh, to in, in theory anyway a way to use Chinese companies that. Uh, we're reaching uh, market saturation, so you could imagine expanding their market reach. But I think they've carried it out really poorly. Um, and if you're going to be a global player and you're going to be dealing with poor countries, you have to have some idea of what's going to happen when these countries can't pay. You know, I don't think... I don't think I could be wrong, but I don't think the Chinese went into it thinking, "Oh, we're gonna we're gonna pick up a port in Sri Lanka." Mm. You know, I'm not sure that they really needed that port or wanted a particular port there. I think they would have rather have been paid back. You know, and um, so they're in any number of situations where they may not get paid back. It's not a country that has thought much. It's not a government that has thought much about what happens. You know, when you need debt relief, when you need to give debt relief. Um, so some of it that seems sort of Machiavellian, I think, is just incompetence. Um, and they're in a very difficult situation. The United States, you know, um, has a lot of experience, hard-won experience, you know, in Latin America, where they did, you know, sort of something similar. The idea didn't have a fancy name, but the idea was kind of to tie Latin America to the United States, um, you know, with uh, investments, uh, you know, the links to the dollars and all that. And then most of Latin America, you know, <laughs> periodically goes broke. And then, you know, then what do you do with all the debt? And, to, and what happens is unless you figure out ways to write it down, those countries can never repay you back. Mm. And it, it is not a it's not a positive. It's a, it's a it's a negative. You lose your money. You piss off the um, other countries that are in debt. You don't wind up with more allies. And I think that's the situation, you know, that China finds itself in now. Bob, I want to wrap up our conversation by going back to your book. Again, since we mentioned that uh, uh, Donald Trump and Xi Jinping, this threatens a new Cold War. But ultimately, at the end of the day, people are thinking about the word legacy. You know, people are hoping, uh, wondering that what kind of legacy that Xi Jinping is trying to build, because if we look at all the predecessors, you know, like Hu Jintao or Deng Xiaoping or Chairman Mao, however you name it, I think every single person left different stories or different either reality, or we can look at this imaginative uh, descriptions for uh, each generations. But now since Xi Jinping became the leader for China and also after all those years that through ups and downs, so, Bob, from your perspective, what kind of legacy or what kind of stories 
do you think that Xi Jinping is trying to build or hoping to build not only for the domestic audience but also internationally uh, regarding his projects and his policies and political changes or ambitions, etc.? I think he's been very clear about it. You know, it's a national rejuvenation of the Chinese uh, people, of the Chinese China's place in the world. Uh, I think he wants to have, um, by the time he leaves, uh, China to be the you know the leading power in the world, or you know, right there with the United States. I, I think he's been very, very clear about that, and I think uh, the United States doesn't want that to happen. You know, and that is um, where the conflict comes comes in, right? I mean, it's. Uh, you know, for any incumbent power in the United States, they'd be, wouldn't, no incumbent power wants to give up its position. Mm. But if you give up your position to a country that doesn't seem to be a threat, well, that's one thing, right? When England was the leading country and then uh, America became, you know, took its place, it didn't end in a war, you know? Mm. I mean, it was just uh, kind of the way things worked. It was a more, uh, America was a more dynamic and, and bigger economic power. If, if China was seen in a neutral kind of way, uh, it would be difficult for the Americans, but it wouldn't be as frightening. I mean, what's frightening is Xi Jinping's idea that the, you know, China would be the leading power, or at least, you know, you know, right next to the leading power, and also be antagonistic to the United States. Mm. So that's that's where the the fear comes in. But I, th I think Xi Jinping's been very clear from mm. the beginning. This China dream, the rejuvenation. I think it's exactly what he wants. And of course, that for Xi Jinping, he still has a long way to go in order to complete his third term presidency. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great honor to speak to Bob Davis. And again, Bob Davis has covered U.S.-China relations since the 1990s when the two nations were working hard to strengthen their ties. And of course, I strongly encourage everyone to go online and look for Bob's new book. It's called A Superpower Shutdown, How the Battle Between Trump and Xi Threatens a New Cold War. Bob. Again, thank you so much for taking your time to be on the show. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. And again, it's our honor to have such a distinguished journalist like you to help us to understand the ongoing political changes in China and also around the world. Thank you so much for doing this. No, thank you. It's been, uh, it's been a pleasure.